You're listening to It's Not All Academic, a podcast that takes you into the minds and hearts of innovators and problem solvers who are reshaping our world. I'm your host, Nadine Shadia, and in this series, I'll bring you inspiring stories and thought-provoking conversations with experts from various fields. Grab your headphones and get ready to open your ears to a world beyond academia. Hello and welcome to the podcast, It's Not All Academic. Today's guest is Professor Anton Vandenhengel. Anton is the Director of the Centre for Augmented Reasoning at Australian Institute for Machine Learning, Professor of Computer Sciences at the University of Adelaide, and the Director for Applied Science at Amazon. Anton, very warm welcome to you and thanks for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Andy. Now, today's conversation covers artificial intelligence and machine learning. I reached out to you about a week ago because I thought we have such an important message to deliver around this space, and you accepted without hesitation. Presumably, you agree we need to get on the front foot with the narrative around AI and machine learning? Yeah, absolutely. It's a funny time that uh, you know, we all use AI so often, and you've used it a hundred times today, and nonetheless, we seem to be having a very strange debate in this country about what it means to us and our future. And you're quite strong on the notion that we're probably slipping behind or starting from a, a position behind other nations. Yeah, we're certainly behind. I'm not sure if we're slipping. Um, I think we slipped. And the, the question is what we do now. So I want to drill into each of your titles. You've been a lead investigator on over $80 million in research funding from traditional research sources, which include the NHMRC and the Australian Research Council. What research areas are you interested in with your research hat on? It's a very good time to be in machine learning. There's no end of things to do. Things are moving very quickly, which makes it hard to keep up. And there's a lot more people in the field than there used to be. So the, the things that are very hot at the moment are obviously large language models. I'm a computer vision researcher, which means that we're looking at how to get information out of images. And I've been saying for a long time that the interface between language and images is you know, one of the most important and most interesting places to be researching at the moment. And in terms of the work with industry and enterprise, some pretty big names you've worked with there or continuing to work with, so the Googles, Facebooks of the world, what sort of things are you working on with those groups? I'm afraid that uh, all of that predates my going to Amazon, but what I was working with those companies on was really core computer vision problems, but partly about interaction. So the grant that we had with Google was around piece of research we did called Video Trace, which was fantastic. We invented a process by which you could make 3D models just by taking a video. So part of the problem with making 3D models is that there's a lot of semantic content in that process. So, uh, you know, humans think about the 3D shape of their house or their car in a very specific way that actually doesn't really reflect the shape of the object. So people think about the wheels of their car and the doors of their car and the body and the bonnet and the boot as all being separate pieces, whereas the camera just sees them as one big homogenous thing. And 
Yeah, we had this fantastic thing called Video Trace, which allowed people to just draw on one image and make the 3D model that they wanted. And uh, yeah, we worked with Google on uh, on some of that work. What about some of the stuff with BHP Billiton? BHP was also about augmented reality and about content creation for augmented reality. Uh, Funnily, that was not this time around for uh, AR being fashionable. It was the last time that AR was fashionable. And I suspect that there may yet be another time for it to be fashionable before it really kicks in. But the work with BHP was about safety and their training group. So BHP are very interested in improving the safety of their operations and the safety of their workers. And we were working on how to provide a way that they could put employees in dangerous situations virtually so that they didn't have to learn on the job by being in dangerous situations in reality. Where the risks are real. That's it. Okay. What were some of the outcomes from that? Was there some insights there that were unexpected? Yeah, the one of the things that I didn't expect was the level of detail, the level of kind of reality or fidelity that humans expect in their 3D experience. That turns out that people find it distracting if the details aren't right. Um, I didn't expect that. I actually thought that a pretty rough 3D model would do it. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it was a very interesting experience. Yeah. The last conversation I had with Professor Mark Hutchinson, we talked about used a lot of farmer and health type examples, but we talked about the whole feedback loop of research question, building a model, getting some data, and then using that data from the real world to feedback. And I can see that applies in this case where you're using the outputs from the, the research you did there to inform what goes on in a mine or in some other type of environment that BHP operates in. Yeah, absolutely. And how to improve safety in all of those circumstances. Yeah. Together with state government, in 2018, you helped to establish the Australian Institute for Machine Learning, or AIML. Now, this is the largest machine learning institute in Australia, and it's ranked in the top 10 in computer vision. What is it that AIML does? Sure. We do research in computer vision. So computer vision is part of machine learning and uh, is particularly the, the part of machine learning that's interested in extracting information from images, but that puts it in a very interesting space because humans get information out of images very naturally. We're evolved to do it and we're trained to do it. Uh, But actually, information is encoded in images in a very complicated way and it gives rise to some really uh, very interesting challenges. Computer vision is one that I've probably tried to brush up on my knowledge of, but there's this group called Gartner, and Gartner have this thing that they release every year or two called the Hype Cycle. Um, The most recent one I looked at, uh, and for people listening in just to describe what that is, the Hype Cycle has a X and Y axis of expectation against time and shows the predicted life course of specific technologies over a period of time. Really what it shows is a progression from where the innovation occurred, the trigger for the innovation. It progresses up into a peak of inflated expectations. And really what that's saying is people presume that it will solve all problems and expectations are very high with that particular technology. 
Then there's a period where all the risks and problems and potential issues start to surface and people start to get quite risk averse about it. So that's called the trough of disillusionment. And then over a period of time, there's this plateau of productivity where they're talking about it actually making its way out into the real world. There's models being generated. There's those issues we talked about before being worked through. On that hype cycle for 2022 in AI, computer vision was way out in front as something that's ready to basically be realized within two years. That's pretty much Amel's core business, right? That's what we do, yeah. Yeah. Is that something that you can extrapolate from still images as well as video? Because my initial sort of thoughts are around medical data, medical imaging. Is that an area in which Amel specializes? Uh, so, yeah, it's still and moving images. Uh, the, the interesting bit about trying to get information out of images is that no two scenes are the same. So you could have the same semantic content. So you know, you've got a picture of a dog. Yeah. And if you go out and you Google pictures of dogs, you'll get a million pictures of dogs off the internet. And no two of mm. them will be the same. So the semantic content is the same, but the signal that you've got from the camera is different. And every time you take that image, you'll get a different signal, which makes the challenge of trying to get information out of images very complicated. Mm. Um, and, but it's one of the core challenges in you know, true artificial intelligence, right? Trying to relate uh, the real world to symbols is you know, part of what humans are very good at and one of the core parts of, of AI. Uh, we do indeed do a lot of medical imaging here. We've got a very strong medical imaging group. We did the world's first intelligent pathology device uh, about a decade ago now. And it's a very good area for computer vision and one where the commercial gains are already being felt. So there's already machine learning in the MRI scanners, like every MRI that you've had has an algorithm in it that turns a very complicated set of signals that come back from the scanner into an image that a human can understand. But there are an increasing number of tools that radiologists use yes. to to spot cancer or you know all of the other complicated things mm. that they do annotate images and, and the like as well absolutely mm. um one of the most powerful things actually is just throwing images away mm. uh that out of the pathology device we did which reads agar plates actually the most valuable thing that that device does is throw away images of empty agar plates so a human doesn't have to do it and yep. a human can concentrate I'm reading the agar plates that do actually have growths on them. Yeah, and I think you've really nailed an important point for me, and that is that, again, this is trying to dispel some of the myths and fear in the general public and population around that is that whole replacing of jobs. It's going to replace the boring, monotonous, routine, probably less skilled component of the work. So for those oncologists and radiologists we talked about earlier, Presumably, they go through tens, if not hundreds of scans throughout the day. And a big proportion of their time, I'm assuming, would be geared towards identifying regions on those images that they want to investigate further. Applying computer vision to that potentially could shave off minutes per scan. And so they could probably delve straight into the area that they need to focus on based on some sort of recommender system and spend more time actually on the problem area. 
Yeah, indeed. It's a funny debate, right? Um, jobs come and go. Jobs, Job families come and go. Yeah. Um, it won't be computer vision that replaces radiologists. It will be radiologists with computer vision that replace radiologists. Uh, but we're in a... I don't know. So we used to have, uh, before automobiles, we had a whole lot of people employed in shoveling horse poo off the road. Right? Mm. There was a, actually a substantial proportion of the population yeah. were involved in shovel-based enterprises in uh, cleaning up both horses and their excrement. Right? Mm. Not a cool job. <laughs> Not a great job, right? But uh, internal combustion put an end to that entire family of shovel-based enterprises. And nobody is out picketing at the moment because mm. they want their shovel-based job back, right? Yeah. Big cities all had knackers yards for rendering down dead horses. Mm. Yeah. Nobody is complaining that we don't have knackers yards anymore. Uh, used to be 99% of the population was engaged in agriculture, just trying to grow enough food mm. to keep themselves going. Now 1% of the population is engaged in yeah. agriculture. What made the difference was tractors. Nobody is out there picketing saying we want our 98% of the jobs back pulling plows yeah. through the fields by hand or you know trying to harvest wheat with scythes. Yeah. Right? Jobs change all the time and machine learning will change what we do. But as with all of those other kind of industrial advancements, they don't change the number of jobs we have. The number of jobs stays the same. Mm. These job families come and go. Uh, but by and large, like on average, nobody wants the old jobs back, yeah. right? Nobody wants to go back to pulling a plough by hand through a field or yeah. or shoveling horse shit off the road. Right? That's right. And if I think about that agricultural example, whether you're on an olive farm or vineyards uh, pulling berries for wine production, the reality is there's a lot of ag tech developers who go out there, they visit the farmers and they say, we've got this really cool gadget and you know it's going to give you all this data at the tips of your fingers. These people are time poor. They're not there trained in the data. They really need the insights from the data to make a critical decision. Do I water? Do I fertilize? Are the berries you know, the, ripe enough? Are they the right size? Are they tainted? So AI applied to those types of data sets should enable those realizations at the fingertips right yeah the farming process will become increasingly driven by machine learning uh, it's happening right now and it's inevitable because at the moment results we get are dependent on a lot of human expertise and frankly guesswork the machines will do a better job of, of making those decisions just because they can take in more than one lifetime of data. You know, any farmer out there working a field at the moment is operating on the basis of half a lifetime of data, whereas mm. um, the algorithms can take in millions of lifetimes of data and learn from that. So uh, the question for Australia then is whether we're going to mount that revolution, right? whether we're going to increase the productivity of our farms ourselves or we're going to wait for somebody else to do it. Um, there are already farmers in Australia who are growing their crops according to algorithms that are run overseas. Mm. Those algorithms don't consider the nitrogen runoff into the creek or the erosion or what happens to the topsoil or even the carbon mm. output of those farms. 
and they only consider the profit to the algorithm owner. Australia, if it's going to kind of own and control its own destiny, needs to devise its own algorithms in order to give its farmers the best information that we can compete against other AI-enabled farming nations. So presumably there's more to it than just developing an algorithm and throwing it at a large data set. If I'm from the business world and corporate world and I want to work and integrate machine learning and AI into my workflow or processes or technology, how would I go about working with AML, for example? The opportunity that AML offers for, and groups like AML offer for Australia, are twofold and people get them mixed up. What machine learning will do for most Australian industries, most industries globally actually, is just improve productivity by 20%. And that's what it does by better predictions, you know, better decisions, just you know, better maintenance. Predictive maintenance is a really big one. And you know, by and large, you see 20% improvement. And people find that hard to believe, right? There's nothing else out there that will uh, improve productivity by 20%, but it's not my number. It, it comes from a bunch of reports that, uh, that a bunch of those consultancies have done globally. Mm. The, there's a real question about what we do with that 20% improvement, but nonetheless, AML and you know, similar groups around the place, and particularly the, the AI consulting groups, um, you know, there's a bunch of... Uh, SMEs around Australia that can help bring uh, machine learning expertise to businesses and they will by and large improve the productivity of processes by about 20%. Mm. CSIRO do a very good job of it, right? That's essential for businesses, Australian businesses, to keep up with their competitors globally. We have to do that work. The primary advantage, however, that AML offers and you know and similar groups is the opportunity to devise entirely new businesses with global market reach based on machine learning technology. Mm. So you know Google took over advertising pretty much globally through machine learning based algorithms that are better at targeting ads than anything had been before. Okay. Facebook operated in the same space. Uber took over much of transport, you know, personal transport, at least in Australia, but also in you know, a bunch of other places around the world, because they've got a better algorithm for predicting how long it will take to drive from one place to the other than most other people. Mm -hmm. Those businesses sat down and looked at how they could create a uh, business model that scales almost infinitely at almost no cost and make money out of it. And they've done an incredible job at it. And the, that process is running across every industry globally at the moment. Australia is slow to pick that up. I was just in Israel and everybody that you talk to in Israel has a startup mm. with a pitch about how they're going to address a global market. The bus driver gave us a pitch about his yeah. startup, right? And in Australia, it's very rare that you meet anybody. For sure. I had the same experience over in Palo Alto. So same sort of deal, uh, moving around through cabs and just hearing their ideas for 
cars that were half as wide to improve traffic flow and that. You don't really hear and see of those sorts of concepts here as much as you, you do over there. What would you say, though, when you, know, you talk about the Googles of the world, the Facebooks of the world? These are companies with deep pockets, right? So what about the average SME business in Australia? I work specifically in health and medical industries. We don't really have big pharma on our doorstep and big med tech as they do in Europe, United States, parts of Asia. What we do have is a fledgling med tech ecosystem and predominantly small to medium life sciences or biotech companies. So how do companies like that access machine learning and AI expertise? Sure. Um Google and Facebook were started by, I was going to say graduates, I think actually a lot of them yep. didn't even graduate, yep. but they were nonetheless enrolled in um, applied maths and computer science degrees. Uh, they didn't start out with all of this. They didn't inherit a small search engine from their family. You know, They started out with nothing but an insight as to how what well, turns out to be machine learning technology could create a global business opportunity for them. Mm. And that's part of what uh, AIML can help with. Yeah. The important feature, though, is that those markets are global and there are a whole lot of big pharma and so on who are coming to Adelaide, coming to Australia, but certainly coming to Adelaide to work with AIML. One of the best companies that we ever worked with was called LBT Innovations. Yeah. And their model was very good. They figured out that they wanted to uh, take on digital pathology. They didn't have a very clear idea about what they wanted to do, but they knew that there was a big global market there. They raised enough money to be able to come and talk to us about what we might do with them. And together we developed the world's first intelligent uh, pathology device and it got FDA approval and has gone on to be sold globally. Their market wasn't local. They, from the very beginning, had an eye on a global market and they had incredible leadership. And frankly, that's what's missing here. Yeah. It's, it's global vision. We have as much investment as we need to be able to do these things. The question is whether we've got the vision. I think what I can see happening is that the average person who wants to integrate AI and machine learning tools into their venture will be able to do so probably through some sort of marketplace, uh, much like an apps marketplace, or possibly even through some sort of um, skill sharing platform like an Upwork or a Fiverr where you can access the skills of freelancers. There is right now. You can go to the local consulting companies. There's some very good people, good people in Adelaide, good people in Australia, mm. very good people internationally. And they will provide that service. So they, you know, they're mainly aimed at the process improvement end of the spectrum. So they're mainly aimed at the kind of 20% improvement. Sure. But that's because that's the question they get asked. They're also very, very happy to work at the um, larger, more innovative global market end of the spectrum. Uh, it's just that, unfortunately, there's not a lot of call for that in Australia because mm. we do tend to focus on our feet as a nation, I'm afraid. Yeah. The next thing I wanted to ask you about was your role as Director of Applied Science at Amazon. The reason that intrigues me so much is that it's squarely at the interface between science, technology, and the consumer. 
Um, the group that I run for Amazon is about 20 PhDs. I started the group three and a half years ago. Amazon wanted to start a group in Australia because they had identified that there were fantastic graduates here and that there's not a lot of competition. Most of our graduates that go into those kinds of jobs have to go overseas to get them, unfortunately. Mm. So it's fantastic to be able to offer jobs in Australia at relatively international salaries that reflect the value that machine learning offers to businesses. So what we do in Amazon is to devise new ways to solve problems for customers. So we're, we're part of the retail arm of Amazon. We actually work in the emerging markets. So we're uh, part of the international machine learning group. We focus particularly on emerging markets. And that means that we're solving problems for you know the next 200 million customers in India and so on. Those businesses at that size uh, are operating at a scale where everything is a machine learning problem. Just, you know, addressing is a machine learning problem. Putting things into boxes is a machine learning problem. The only way that you can operate at that scale is for everything to be a machine learning problem. Australia you know, is recently to figure out that to get to a global scale without uh, running out of resources is, is this model that's based on machine learning. Mm. And we're relatively late to the party, but it's what you know, Microsoft, Facebook, Google and Amazon employ hundreds of thousands of yeah. machine learning experts globally uh, at frankly, some eye-watering salaries because of the difference they make to their businesses. They don't pay the salaries because we're a nice bunch of people, yeah. right? Generally, we're antisocial and, uh, <laughs> you know, not very good at small talk, terrible at tennis, mm. right? But nonetheless, uh, the standard starting salary for one of my graduates from the university to go to the U.S., is about 300,000 wow. US a year. Yeah. That's starting salary mm. straight out of a PhD, and it goes up from there. That's because of the value that those graduates offer to those businesses. Google used to value potential uh, acquisitions, so potential companies to buy, yeah. at a million dollars an engineer, and the number's gone up since then. The reason that these people don't get paid as much in Australia is because Australian companies haven't figured out how to get that business value out of that capability. We have good capability here. The question is why haven't Australian businesses mm. seized the opportunity yet? So that's really good insight there. Like I had no idea that was the size of the carrot that's being dangled in front of really highly skilled people. Obviously, we won't see Australian companies just start dangling that sort of salary offering out. So how do they bridge the gap in the meantime? The salaries are a reflection of the value that the companies are getting yeah. out of those people. So they reflect the value that machine learning can offer to companies trying to capture global value. Mm. And so what's missing is the business models. Yeah. So back to the previous question or you know, a question a few ago, part of what AMOL can help with is to enable companies to 
identify global business models mm. based on machine learning that might help them capture a completely different market. Yeah. A lot of the focus for machine learning in Australia is on SMEs. The truth is that most SMEs are already flat out trying to do what they're already right. doing. And rightly so, right? They've got a business mm. model. They've figured out what they're going to do. Machine learning would be a distraction for them. We don't have the startup community in Australia that they do in the US that takes these crazy ideas, these big, possibly global ideas, and, and implements them. We also don't have risk appetite in this country for funding startups that have got a 10% chance of doing something absolutely incredible. We've got a surprisingly small number of unicorns. I think the last time I looked, there were 16 unicorns. So a unicorn is a company that has started within the last five years, I think, and which has a value of over a billion dollars US. So it doesn't mean that anybody's going to give you a billion dollars for it. It just means that 10% of your shares have sold for 100 million. So we theoretically have a small number of unicorns in Australia. But the truth is that almost all of those companies have had to take money out of the US or elsewhere in order to get those valuations and to get to that size. So we don't actually really have any Australian unicorns mm. because we don't back our own arm. Right? In Israel, however, they've got many local unicorns and unicorns that are funded purely out of their own investment. Uh, we have yet to grasp the opportunity in this country. And unfortunately, the opportunity is slipping through our fingers. So this talks to a little bit of the uh architecture and the ecosystem that the government is responsible for a lot of. What do you think and what are government doing to foster, to nurture, to encourage that type of flourishing that you're talking about? Almost nothing, I think. Mm. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, every time the issue comes up, they come up with a new plan about how they're going to help existing businesses to adopt machine learning. So that's the 20% improvement. And it's good, like it has to be done. CSIRO have a modest amount of funding to be able to do some of that stuff. Uh, AMOL has a modest amount of funding to be able to do some of that work. But it's not going to get us unicorns. So, right. So if we're serious about becoming that type of player, what what do we need? So Silicon Valley didn't arise by accident. Mm. Silicon Valley is centered around Stanford University, and Stanford University was a mid-tier agricultural university before they received billions of dollars of defense funding to uh, boost America's defense capabilities. And lo and behold, out of that arose a fantastic university, one of the world's top five universities, and a whole lot of academics and postdocs out of that university started their companies around Stanford, and that's Silicon Valley. Mm. Silicon Valley is a ring around Stanford. Palo Alto is a suburb of Stanford because the government of the US put billions of dollars Mm. in sustained research funding into that organisation to develop core capability. We as a nation in Australia don't carry out that level of investment and we have to. There's an economist called uh, Mariana Mazzucato. He's got a very 
you know, eloquent statement on how you need to invest in the long term in that kind of core capability in order to bring industry along and to de-risk the investment for industry. You know, Australian industry fails to innovate, serially fails to innovate, um, with or without universities. Right? Australian universities, many of them are in the top 100 in the world. We have fantastic universities. Australian industry almost uh, exclusively fails to innovate. And it's that's a failure of industry, but really it's a failure of government to make that investment appealing enough. Mm. We're a very wealthy country. We have been for a very long time and we have serially failed to invest and to innovate. And you know, that's why we wind up as a place where we dig stuff up and ship it overseas mm. and buy it back at an inflated rate. Mm. Does the geography count against us in terms of the location from some of the key markets that we try and serve? Our geography has been our saving grace, really. Mm. It's digging things up and uh, you know, farming to a lesser extent that really has supported us for all this time. It's our geography that is our only saving grace. Mm. Well, this is what I was going to ask you. So maybe some of the lower hanging fruit where we can apply and maybe start to leverage is, is some of those uh, primary industries. So um, anywhere from mining, agriculture, you know, things where we're sitting here enjoying on a Friday afternoon and AI-generated beer. So perhaps brewing and vineyards and viticulture, are they some of the lower-hanging fruit in terms of where Australia can play in machine learning and AI? There's certainly some of the more interesting places mm. AI can play. So the AI beer is made by a local brewery called Barossa Valley Brewing. It's delicious, by the way. <laughs> I can highly recommend yeah. it. Yeah. And... It arises out of a collaboration with them where we took a whole lot of brewing recipes off the internet and uh, provided Barossa Valley Brewing with an interface where they could devise their own recipes. And that's been incredibly successful because it reduces the number of experiments they need to do in order to arrive at the beer they want. Okay. So normally if a brewer wants to devise a new beer, they will have to brew eight or ten batches of it. Each batch takes six weeks to 12, depending on the type of beer. This process reduces the number of experiments for them to get to a, the beer they want by... 50 to 80 percent and there's a lot of cost in brewing beers that uh, are just experimental and don't go out to the market and there's also a lot of time so that technology allows breweries to get to the beer they want quicker and the same applies for wineries so there's a lot of applications in wine one of them is in blending a lot of what winemakers do is blend uh, patches of uh, vines that go into separate fermenters and then at the end of the brewing process mm. they wind up with a bunch of effectively ingredient wines that they then blend and put into a barrel so that they can be uh, bottled later on. That blending process involves a lot of human expertise yeah. and means that the outcomes are very dependent on a small number of individuals and their taste buds. And we thus wind up with wines that probably are best suited to those taste buds. Yeah. Those, are, those taste buds are often owned by 
later middle-aged white men and uh, who've had, you know, middle-class lives and uh, have tasted a lot of wine. Mm. So Not a true representation of the rest of us necessarily. That's it. And, you know, there are great uh, portions of the population that don't drink wine. Mm. And you could think that perhaps that's because they're not represented Mm. in the wine blending process. But we can, using AI, devise wines that will optimise for different palettes, different styles, and maybe even uh, different markets. I find that really fascinating. That's sort of bordering on um, precision and personalization from a consumption point of view, because I focus a, a lot on that in terms of health, precision medicine, um, those sorts of things. So to see it creeping over into personalized beverages, perhaps it, it, it lends itself to fragrance as well. You know, It's funny, isn't it, that we have personalized recommendations on Netflix and Spotify and Facebook yeah. is just one big personalized recommendation yeah. <laughs> engine. And yet somehow the narrative in a lot of medicine is that personalized medicine won't work. Uh, it's just not true. Like it's a myth. There were some bad experiments in personalized medicine. It wasn't implemented properly. They were testing the waters. Personalized medicine is the future. It, there's no other way because... People are individuals and the one-size-fits-all process by which much of medicine is carried out at the moment just won't succeed in the face of truly personalised outcomes, right? It's, if you can come up with a medical treatment process that actually fits the needs of the patient instead of really being one-size-fits-all, mm. then it will inevitably produce better outcomes. You can see the failure of the current system in unintended drug interactions, but also just in the fact that you know so many patients are getting chemo with their last gasp. Yeah. Right? That's not creating yeah. the best outcome for patients. It's just a one-size-fits-all. It's a failure of this one-size-fits-all model that we have. And I think a lot of the underlying information is there. It's in journals. It's in prior clinical trials. It's a matter of overlaying that and really getting the insight from all of that data. How do you see – so currently there's – in terms of in the health sphere at least, there's this ongoing tension between – privacy data and and what data was consented for in terms of its use, access to it, um, and then interoperability of systems. So one piece of software, one piece of kit, actually reading that data and being able to sort of get it onto another type of operating system. Are we anywhere near overcoming some of those barriers and limitations? I think it's wonderful the efforts that people put in to overcome those limitations. The way that these changes have happened in other industries isn't by trying to turn the incumbent behemoth around, it's by disruption. And part of the problem we have in medicine is that we're having the wrong debate. I raised this idea the other day at a medical devices conference where people were telling me machine learning in medicine is too dangerous, we're going to run some trials, we'll gradually make progress, we can't possibly uh, do any harm and so on. And the truth is medicine does harm all the time. Mm. Uh, Harm is an inevitable part of medicine. And 
the real question at the moment is how much harm we're doing by not making medicine available mm. to much of the population. Anybody who's tried to get into a GP recently will know how badly we've failed at that process. The medical industry in Australia is where the taxi industry was 10 yeah. years ago. Very confident that they'd spent 250 grand each on their uh, number plates mm. and their special licenses and their special cards. Yeah. And they were regulated, they were protected by laws, and Uber came in mm. and a set of taxi plates now is worth about $3.50. Yeah, that's right. It's not necessarily just medicines, AI and machine learning apply. It's also things like scheduling, right? So we're talking about highly professional people with very busy calendars who need to optimise the patient flow not only for their day, but also to relieve some of the blockages in the, in the healthcare system. We won't be able to do that without beyond pen and paper, spreadsheet type appointment scheduling, unless we start applying and overlaying these algorithms and, and this machine learning to it, right? There's been a lot of work in that space. Hospital optimization is a, a really big opportunity to improve health outcomes. It's just administration really mm, yeah but it turns out that if you've got a patient who could be released now but you're just waiting for a gurney or an orderly or a or some paperwork to yep. be done but they're occupying a bed that is that could be occupied instead by somebody who's now sitting in the er and if you get that person out of er then you can take somebody else out of yep. an ambulance then you can optimise the flow of patients through the hospitals and get a much better outcome for everybody involved because it's, it's really unlikely that the best people to keep in an ambulance are the people who've just turned up to the hospital, yeah. right? It's much better to get rid of people. The, the people at the exit stage of mm. a hospital are much more likely to be able to go home yeah. rather than not letting people in. So we'd make decisions that are based on these historical you know, precedences, right? We make it on the basis of habit rather than making the best decision for the patient or the system. The big one really is keeping people out of hospital mm. altogether. To begin with, yeah. Also preparing the places to be ready to receive them after treatment or after a visit to the emergency department. Some of them need to go into specialised care. Others need to go into aged care. Um, some have to go to palliative care, unfortunately, but not all of those places are ready to receive them. So whilst we can throw ambulances and beds at the front end, really it's the throughput in the middle that's needing more attention and the places at the end. So you know, all those things like community care, care in place, hospital in the home, they become important. Hospital in the home, I think, is a fantastic initiative mm. and we should make better use of it. Yeah. And it's there are huge advantages. It's not just that there's a cost saving mm. and that we might fix ramping by getting people out of hospital sooner. There's much better outcomes for patients. Yeah. So, you know, we've all seen people who've gone into hospital for one thing, right? you know, gone in for a hip replacement or something like that and come out with seven other conditions that they've acquired through that process, whether it's just through the inevitable immobility of being in hospital or, you know, staph infections, MRSA. Yeah. And if we can get people out of hospitals and uh, into programs like hospital at home, then 
the outcomes are better for everybody. And, you know, just the psychological benefits mm. are fantastic. Right? Yeah. Brilliant. Uh, Anton, it's been riveting to chat with you. I've learned a lot. I think the listeners will really enjoy this episode. The take-home messages are that AI and machine learning are not something to be feared, but something that we should look to integrate, similar to what accountants did when they stopped writing ledgers and profit and losses on pen and paper and integrated spreadsheets in Microsoft Excel. So thank you for your time and uh, look forward to exciting opportunities in machine learning and AI space. Fantastic, Nadine. It's been great to talk to you. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this episode. Be sure to subscribe to It's Not All Academic on your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to spread the word. Together, let's open our eyes to the incredible world of applied innovation.